sometimes primary care doctor oncologists struggle to bring up palliative care because of this baggage, because then the patients are terrified and think that this is some sort of indirect way of telling them that they're dying soon. So it's a huge, there's a lot of ramifications to this problem. So from a public point of view, I would say I meet more and more people who, who at least have heard of palliative care. I meet more and more people who actually do know what it is and are requesting it. And that's my dream. Hi, friends. Welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. In case you're new to the show, yes, this is a podcast about grief. I've created a show that explores the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives because, well, let's face it, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I witnessed it time and time again in my career as a social worker and in my personal life too, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet individually and collectively, we are pretty grief illiterate and that's causing us all so much harm. So I'm on a mission to reimagine grief, one conversation at a time. I'm so glad you're joining me. Today's episode is brought to you by Vita. They know that the past two years have taken a tremendous toll on people's mental and physical health. From depression to diabetes to stress, Vita Health is the only solution designed to treat the wide range of conditions that drive up costs and drive down quality of life. Whether you're looking for ways to help your employees or a solution for yourself, Vita helps people live happier, healthier lives by treating body and mind together. Visit Vita.com to learn more. That's V-I-D-A.com. Vita, healthcare designed for body and mind. I've been such a fan of today's guest for a long time, so I'm thrilled to share my conversation with Dr. BJ Miller with you today. BJ is a longtime hospice and palliative medicine physician and educator. He's worked in all kinds of settings of care, hospital, clinic, residential facility, and home. Led by his own experiences as a patient, BJ advocates for the roles of our senses, community, and presence in designing a better ending. We began our conversation with a story of how he came to be a patient after a catastrophic injury in his 20s. Together, we explored the challenges of acknowledging grief and humanity in traditional systems of care and why it's important to grapple with the truth that suffering, illness, and dying are fundamental and intrinsic aspects of life. His warmth and wisdom and insight taught me so much throughout our conversation, and I know you're going to learn so much too. BJ Miller, I want to welcome you to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this conversation longer than you've even known my name, but I've been looking (laughs) forward to this conversation. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So y'all have heard a little bit at the top of the show, and you'll hear more about BJ's career as a palliative doctor and the experiences and the passions that he has. But BJ, I wanted to start our conversation where I start with every single guest, which is 
inviting you to reflect on one of your earliest memories of grief, of loss. Might doesn't have to be a death loss in your childhood. And in particular, I'm always interested in having people think about the explicit or implicit behaviors or language that the adults in your life were using and, and what you think that taught you, for better or for worse, about what grief, I'm use that word, the S word, should look and feel like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you think about an early loss and what you learned through that? Yeah. Two come to mind. One was, let's see, we were living in New, New Mexico at the time. So I would have been, I don't know, six or seven years old, young. And I remember my sister's goldfish died. We just saw the little guy upside down and you know, we were all sad. I just, I, you know, it's a long time ago. It's, a, it's not an intense memory per se, except I remember the dad's answer of what to do with this poor goldfish was to flush him down the toilet. And, and at the time, I just, all I remember was not like, I just remember feeling like, really? Is that what we're supposed to do? <laughs> like, is that, that seems. Just not very auspicious or ceremonial no, or, yeah. No, didn't the toilet just seemed like the wrong place for that little guy. But I don't I don't want to make too much of it. It was just like a, huh. Yeah. And then a couple years after that, not long after that, when I was, I think, seven, seven or eight, my grandmother died, grandmother Margot, my dad's mom. And that one was a different experience in many ways, <laughs> obviously. But this was, so my grandmother had a combination of a stroke and a heart attack and was in a hospital for several weeks before she died. And so I just remember going to her and I remember there being some conversation of whether or not I should be allowed to come see her. Right. Is this a place for children kind of thing? Yeah. 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 And I don't remember details, of course. It just I just remember being the question of whether I should go into the room. And I remember they, my parents choosing that I should go into the room and I did. And this was, my grandmother was still alive and she was severely, I mean, she couldn't speak. She was dysarthric. She had obvious paralysis. And she, I remember from my experience, she really didn't look like my grandmother, you know? And I was sort of like, who is this person? And I can remember, you know, she was struggling to say anything. And then I just remember a moment of eye contact with her that really said, okay, this is, this is my grandma. This is Margot. And I don't know what I'm seeing. I just, but I remember just being glad to see her. I just remember being not freaked out or something. I just remember I was glad to be in the room. And then she died shortly thereafter. And then there was another question, and she had an open casket funeral. And I remember the question of whether or not I should be able to view her body. And I remember my parents making a, I can't remember who they, maybe they're talking to my grandfather. But I kind of remember there being some conversation and there was a calculated decision to say, yes, we should let him see his grandmother and that, that is the right thing to do. I don't remember, obviously, the dialogue. So I went in. I remember the room. And so I went into the viewing. And I just remember a feeling of being a little kind of freaked out. But I was a little, I was pre-freaked out from a hospital visit. Now I was like, so I knew this was my grandmother. And I also knew she was, now this time she wasn't there. There wasn't the eye contact. There wasn't this primal connection happening. And I just remember, oh, she's this is her body. She's gone. Her body, this is her body. This is not her. I don't think I could say much more than that. I just remember thinking, wow, this is strange. Wow, this is big. And wow, this isn't scary. That's kind of all I remember. And I remember being glad. I remember I leaned into the casket and kissed her cheek. And I remember it being cold. And that was odd. 
And I remember wondering why there's all this makeup on her. But I just remember that it did do something good for me. When I kissed her cheek, when I saw she wasn't there, there was something, I suppose, amounting to closure for me or something like that. I would be making stuff up if I said much more. I just remember it being an important experience and one that I'm glad, I was glad, quickly glad to have had. Yeah. Wow. And so can you recall back? So this is your dad's mom that passed. Mm -hmm. Reflecting now, what did you see as far as bringing her memory forward into the conversation, into life, expressions of different emotions? What do you think you saw or learned about grief after death? Not much. What I saw was a very pro forma funeral that didn't have much to do with her. You know, it was sort of, you just felt like you're going through a ritual or something like, okay, yeah. uh, now I sit now here, we do now this. I listen, now I go over there. And, you know, it felt like I was, it was a feeling not unlike some of the early memories of being in church it was like, okay, I'm not sure what this is all about. I'm not sure exactly what they're saying, but there's some structure and some process that I'm up doing here. That's all I kind of remember. There wasn't a lot of early, I don't recall a lot of reminiscing per se. That seemed to come later over time as we'd reflected on Margot. But around the time of her death, the funeral process, I just remember it feeling like the makeup on her skin. So they're like, what's this? Like, what there? is the point? Yeah. The, I'm, yeah. I, I, must, I must be, I'm a kid. I must be missing something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and I appreciate that. And even just that dialogue about, you know, would your, should a kid go? And then what would it look like? And that you were even able, I mean, that's pretty prescient at seven to sort of understood that you could see her soul through your eye gaze in the, in the hospital room. And then, and then at the funeral, there was really, that was yeah. just, the form that she took on this earth kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, I didn't articulate that no. to myself, but I remember the a feeling, the affect, the the emotional kind of residue of the moment. And that that's kind of how it felt. Yep. Yeah. Oh, well, I appreciate you taking us back there. I'm always just trying to make visible. I teach this course at, at University of Texas in Austin, and I ask my students these questions too and ask them to reflect. Just to, again, you know, as a reminder for folks might be just joining the show for the first time, I'm always wanting us to sort of investigate what our grief beliefs are, where they come from, not so we can go back and yell at our parents for doing a crappy job because they did the best they could. We're doing the best we can. Our kids will probably look at us and think we got it wrong. And <laughs> it's really more about being in your awareness about what your beliefs are so that you can make decisions now. Like, is this serving me or is this not serving me? Which is a question I ask myself and my clients and my students all the time when I, we think about beliefs. And we might talk about that later when we talk about suffering, maybe, and pain, that sort of notion of that. But I'd love for those folks who don't know you yet, who haven't read your work, seen your TED Talks, seen your interviews, can you tell us a little bit about your your injury, your loss, your original loss, and how you got into what that showed you about medicine and, and leading you to palliative medicine? Yeah, so... I think it really, and a lot of the, what led me into palliative care really was as much to do with my childhood and growing up with a mother who was disabled from polio and post-polio syndrome and spending a lot of time being very close to her and just feeling for her uh, and watching her navigate the world as, a, as an obviously disabled person. I learned a lot from it. And also, in retrospect, we didn't use this language, but I was something of a caregiver for her. And so that's really the way into so much of what I've ended up working on for my career. 
what the big moment really was when I was 19, the sort of a real catalytic moment was when I was 19 and a sophomore in college and friends of mine and I were screwing around one night on a commuter train. It was a, just a parked train car sitting there. It wasn't moving. We didn't, we just thought we were climbing a jungle gym kind of thing. It wasn't, we didn't think it was such a big deal, but um, we had done dumber things, we thought. but so, As sophomores in college are want yeah, to do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there's even a word sophomoric for doing For, for this very, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I was yeah. true to type and doing doing my bit to be sophomoric. <laughs> and so anyway, when I climbed up on top of this train, I had a metal watch on. And in New Jersey, the electrical, the trains are electrified from overhead. So when I stood up on top of this parked car, I got close enough to the power source and the electricity arced to my metal watch. And, you know, that, that was it. There was a big explosion and, you know, that landed me in a burn unit for many months and uh, close to death for about a month or so and uh, ended up losing both legs below the knee and my left arm below the elbow, but survived. And, you know, in many ways, that was, a you imagine, a pretty profound experience and and the recovery and moving through all that, I learned a ton. That's very much what led me to pursue uh, uh, work in medicine, really, because basically the impulse was I, I had never studied medical science. It wasn't like I'd always wanted to be a doctor. That wasn't, it was more, I, in fact, I was heading more for, I was studying Chinese language and probably heading for East Asian studies. And I don't know where I would have gone with all that, but this experience of being saved by the healthcare system, this experience of becoming a disabled person, this experience of feeling so much and needing so much support and and feeling, at a time developmentally when you're supposed to be yeah, you know, becoming so independent too. I mean, yes. the timing of that is I'm you're sure right profound. About that. Yeah. You're right about that and and this is that's where I think my childhood helped me so much because I had a wonderful time freshman year in those first two months of the sophomore year. I, you know, I'd been a late bloomer and I was just coming into my body and I was really, I had a wonderful year of sort of, of this kind of independent thing, but it wasn't that, that was the anomaly in my life. And I look back, the bulk of my 19 years had been spent in some interdependent dance with my mother and others. So it wasn't a huge shocker for me to need people. In fact, that was a pretty comfortable place. It was hard for me to, the hard part of that was I thought I was, that people would read that as weakness. I knew it was a normal thing to need people, but I didn't know if my peers and friends thought so. And I didn't know if I was going to be, what my social life was going to be. And so I learned so, so amazing. I also learned about the the pitfalls of the American healthcare system and where it doesn't do such a good job. And so armed with all those experiences and knowing that as a disabled human in this day and age that I'd learned from my mother and others, you know, you're, you don't overcome a disability. We like to say that the able-bodied people love those stories of people overcome obstacles and all this stuff, but you don't, I don't overcome this. This is my daily existence, you know? So I, I knew better to set myself up for something other than, than this, this sort of, you're special now and you overcome this stuff. I, I didn't buy into any of that. Thank, thank the gods. Thank goodness. Yeah. That's I mean, that's pretty sophisticated because it's pretty easy to fall into that cultural. I mean, as you Huge. said, that's some that's our American ethos kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and overcome. Absolutely. And, 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I, you're right about that, Lisa. Thank you. I, I just blew past that as a sentence, but the actual process of that was a big, big deal. And one of those moments where I feel so lucky uh, that, I, again, I thanks to my mom and the childhood I had and a family unit that I had to model some of these things before my my own experience. So I knew I knew some things going in that a lot of my peers didn't know yet. So it was a, you're right, that was a big deal, but that wasn't me being genius. That was me having a certain life to date. And letting it inform you. I mean, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that whole bag, that whole mixture is what turned me on to, okay, I want to, so I graduated college. I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. I, it, you know, just getting through the day was plenty, but now I knew well, I had these profound experiences that taught me so much that changed who I was, but also kind of reified who I was. Not in some ways I was different. In many ways I was the same. And that was very interesting to me. I want to come back to that later for sure. Yeah. yeah. How we sink more deeply into our truest self when we're faced with these challenges. Yeah. Right yeah. on. Right on. So I knew I wanted to work with all those things, play with all those things. That was grist. You know, that was powerful stuff. And so medicine lit up as an idea for me to exercise these things, to also work on a system that had give back in a sense, give to a system that had saved my life, but also work on it constructively in ways I knew it could be better. So that's what took me into medicine and eventually into palliative care. Oh, I appreciate that. Well, I think so many of us who are in helping professions end up coming to it through both our childhood experiences. My mom had a illness, I sort of now look back and realize I was a caretaker too for much of my high school years, but also these profound moments in time that we have. And sometimes it's because of the gratitude and sometimes, and I, I'd say I have a mixed bag too, how I became a social worker. There was some good, but there was also a lot of real missed opportunities and frankly, harmful beliefs that, you know, just, I knew I wanted to get in there and do something else. When you were going into the field and ended up going into palliative care, what era of palliative care was that in this country? Because I think about hospice and palliative care in our sort of collective psyche and even practices as having evolved quite a bit over time. So was palliative care the thing that it is now? Or tell me a little bit about what you were seeing and learning in those early days of the school and practice, maybe even. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great question, Lisa. This, I think the history of our little field is kind of fascinating and new. So one thing to say is, so I, I graduated medical school, I was in medical school from 1997 to 2001. And I had, by the time I graduated medical school, I don't think I had heard, or the words hadn't registered. I don't know that I'd heard of palliative care. I had heard of hospice. I knew what hospice was, or had a sense of what hospice was. So, and okay, that sounded cool, uh, but I wasn't necessarily drawn to it per se. The palliative care service at UCSF, where I was a medical student, University of California, San Francisco, started right around the year 2000. So when I was late in my medical school trajectory, and that was one of the earlier programs, you know, uh, the field per se, really, you could say it started many different times, but really in earnest, uh, the early palliative care programs in the U.S. were in the 1990s, really. So still really in its infancy. Absolutely in its infancy. And then it wasn't until 2006 that it became an official subspecialty of medicine. And now the official subspecialty is called hospice and palliative, palliative. medicine. Yeah. So I graduated medical school in 2001. I thought I was going to do rehab medicine, work with other people who had just been through some traumatic experience. In the same way that palliative care works for me, it was I was trying to apply it to the field I knew, which was rehab. I fell out of love with rehab the second I actually tried to do some work in it. 
for all sorts of reasons. And I actually dropped out of what we call the match, the when you apply from medical school to your residency, I dropped out of it. I was going to get out of medicine because I, I had promised myself, having come close to death, I knew that my life, I didn't want to turn this life into just a sacrificial pursuit. And I'd met many people who were physicians or other professions who didn't really love it. They just did it because they didn't, had never developed any other interest. Yeah. They're like, well, shit, I went through medical school. So I, I guess I might as well. I might yeah. as well now. I can't stop now. Yeah. And I just knew I was not, I was going for something more expansive than that. My My doors had been blown open by coming close to death. And I didn't want to give up that particular, there was a power to it. There was a, I knew. There's a magic when you're kind of working in alignment with your purpose or however you want to talk about it. Absolutely there is. And especially if you can see the structures and the things that are being handed to you, the pathways that are being handed to you aren't, you can see the flaws in them and you can see them, you know, if you've been pre-disillusioned, yeah, you know, you the world. It's all you see. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I knew some things. And I was keen to exercise those things I knew. And those included like, no, don't just do medical practice because you happen to have gone to medical school. So, so I promised myself when I started this, because I wasn't even sure I could do it mechanically. I didn't know any triple amputees who had gone through med school. I don't, you know. So I, I promised myself, I'm going to get on this horse and I will get off this horse if it's too hard or if I don't like it or if something else comes along that I'd rather do. That was my promise to myself. So I was, I was going to finish medical school. But I was going to do something else. But my deans, I didn't know what, but I was going to drop out of medicine. My dean talked me into doing an internship year, the first postdoc year, just because if you stopped after your internship, at least you can get your license and practice as a general practitioner. If you wanted to jump back in later on and down the road, it would be easier to you do so. got to that gate. Yeah. 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 So it was one more year. I'd, I'd finished med school. Okay, fine. I'll do my internship. Long winded way of saying it was during my internship at the Medical College of Wisconsin, where I went back to live with my parents who were in Milwaukee at the time. And I was just going to get through the year, but I happened to stumble on this elective of palliative care and fell immediately in love with it for all sorts of reasons. So that's, I don't remember what you asked. Yeah, no, that's it. I asked how you got to palliative and what it was. So I'd love for you, for those folks who don't know, because I think there's a lot of misinformation. I have had guests on pediatric palliative social workers and other people, but I think there's some confusion between palliative and hospice. And also I'd be particularly interested in kind of in your definition of palliative, helping us think about the more expansive way in which we think about pain, not Mm -hmm. just physical pain or existential, psychological, social. Can you tell us a little bit about, just to set the stage for, so we're all on the same page here. Yeah, thank you. It's such an important point. A lot of palliative care physicians struggle even to describe palliative care. It's a funny thing. We really have a messaging problem. But essentially, palliative care is the interdisciplinary pursuit of quality of life. So our, our target is suffering, the human experience of illness versus the target of disease or something or of illness per se. So, you know, that may sound like a subtle distinction or sometimes when I share what palliative care is with lay people, they say, well, isn't that what healthcare is about? Like, isn't healthcare there to treat your suffering? But the answer is no, it's, it is not. <laughs> it is not important. In, in so many ways, in it is so not. many ways. So, <laughs> so that's all that palliative care is. Palliative yeah. care is a pursuit of quality of life, the focus on the experience of illness versus some outcome like cure or something like that. I, my patients are my patients, whether or not they're curable. It's irrespective to me. And then hospice is a subset of palliative care 
that is its own sort of industry. It has an insurance benefit design Attached around to it, it yeah. since 1982, and that has a lot to do with how the hospice works. And so the important point here is a hospice is a subset of palliative care, this idea of focusing on quality of life, irrespective of cure. But now that sort of enterprise focus really in the final months of life. So, and hospice, in the history of all this, it's interesting. Hospice came first. So, and it grew out of the, the modern hospice movement, grew out of the UK in the 1960s and made its way to the North America in the late 70s. And one of the realizations through those early years in the 1980s and into the 1990s was, well, wait a second, why do we wait till the very end of life to focus on someone's quality, quality of life, of life. their to, relationships. To lessen their suffering, yeah. To yeah. lessen their suffering, to find peace, to make amends. So why, why do we save this very beautiful, sort of in a way simple approach to care for the final hours of life? <laughs> in so many ways, it's too late. Then it's just a sort of a salvage operation. The truth is, you know, if you find a way to working in on these things, thinking about these things, coming to terms with your mortality, uh, pushing through your own experiences of suffering. You learn so much. You gain so much. It's so beautiful. So in the 1990s, we started trying to find ways to move this work farther upstream. And that's why this thing called palliative care, this big umbrella formed around hospice. And that's how the field got started, essentially. So that also confuses people because hospice came first, but palliative care is the sort of the bigger thing. And what? It, it gets very confusing. Yeah. When we come back, BJ helps us understand how our perceptions and uses of palliative care has shifted and the impact that's having both on patients and medical staff. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Dr. B.J. Miller. Don't forget, if you want to keep up with the latest on the show, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast platform. If you want some behind-the-scenes news, the latest on my work with individuals and companies, the scoop on the book I'm writing, same name as the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, and so much more, visit lisakiefoffer.com. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. And sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is this newsletter. As a palliative care doctor, as you've been practicing this now for 20 years, if I'm doing my math, right? Something like that. What are you seeing, you know, the enthusiasm or the resistance, both kind of maybe in your patient population, you know, of even understanding? I mean, I can think of for some people feeling like palliative and hospice. For some, they think of as a failure, as a giving up. It's very exactly. much against our ethos of, you know, we fight cancer and we battle with disease and we fix, you know, there's everything about our culture that is. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering what you've seen sort of writ large, the evolution of people's either leaning into or resistance to the mm -hmm. notions of palliative, both from the patient and families, but also even just from your fellow yeah. doctors who aren't maybe palliative trained or palliative informed. 
Yeah, that's a great question. Let's start with the public or the patient yeah. side of things. You know, that <laughs> most people still don't know what the heck palliative care is. Yeah. And even if you poll the public, many people now will say they've heard of palliative care more than five years ago, but they'll tell you that it's it's a hospice. It's all about end of life, you know? Yeah. So even those who have heard the phrase generally don't know what it means. Yeah. And just to get at this point of why that's, I don't mean to be sort of tedious and wordsmith around this. The problem with that ambiguation, I guess, is the word of confusing or conflating hospice and palliative care is, sure, in palliative care, we do tend to end of life too. But if the way people conceive of it is all about end of life care, well, then they'll wait way too long to access exactly. this kind of care. And if someone, God forbid, suggests palliative care may be helpful for you, people will freak out because they think it's some indirect You've way You've given of up saying, on me. Yeah. Exactly. So when sometimes primary care doctors or oncologists struggle to bring up palliative care because of this baggage, because then the patients are terrified and think that it's some sort of indirect way of telling them that they're dying soon. So it's a huge, there's a lot of ramifications to this problem. So from a public point of view, I would say I meet more and more people who, who at least have heard of palliative care. I meet more and more people who actually do know what it is and are requesting it. And that's my dream. I mean, yeah. the doctor, we got a lot of work to do on medical education. Let's keep doing that. But you don't need to wait for your doctor to come around. You as a patient or as a family member can lead this charge and say, hey, what is palliative care right for me? What access do you have? Do you have a palliative care service in this hospital or in this health system? And if patients are requesting that, if they're pushing that, it's much harder for a doctor to wiggle out of that equation. So I'm seeing more of that. We have way more to go, but I would say over my course of my career, it's gotten better in this way. We, we just got a long way to go. And I think more, the other, account, the other point in there, Lisa, is as more and more people have their turn within a very broken, lumbering healthcare system, more and more people, when I meet them, I say, I never, I, now I just, my mom was just in the hospital or I was just not, but now I see what you're talking about. Now I understand what this pad of care thing is. Yeah. It often takes a negative experience of moving through healthcare without it yeah. to understand the need for it. Because I think it's an important point. In so many ways, this specialty, this subspecialty, therefore this sort of esoteric you know, right. focus. This seems extra and extravagant. Exactly. and Right. Yeah. There's a real problem. That's a problem because the undercurrents, the mechanics of palliative care are largely fundamental. They're very basic. And so you got to understand. So yeah, palliative care, yeah, all of healthcare should be palliative care. I, I completely agree with that presumption, but it turns out it's not. And so you have to understand palliative care, its existence as a discipline is something of a corrective to a healthcare system that kind of lost its way in the 20th century and has found its way to helping a lot of people, but also hurting a lot of people through callous language, through blaming you for dying, through all sorts of ways. So that's another piece of this. To, un to really grasp palliative care in a sense and the reasons it, it exists, you almost have to grasp how broken the healthcare system is without it to really understand why it's here. No, I so appreciate you helping us see its evolution and its place alongside with the bigger system. And to me, when you're talking about it, because I, I think I shared with you, you know, I'm kind of come from this. I'm always thinking about the cultural lens mm -hmm. when I think about systems. And to me, as amazingly progressive as the healthcare system has been and advances and heart and lung, you know, all the things, I'm not bashing on that piece. 
I think what's missing that palliative care is bringing back into is the humanity. These are humans navigating a system. And whenever I think about the interactions I've had, I've shared on this before, the misdiagnosis of my husband and then his treatment and friends who've passed in my arms in hospital systems, some of whom have been through hospice and palliative and lovely because of the nature of the system, because of the nature of educations and training, I think physicians, nurses, you know, folks who are operating in the spaces beyond palliative are trained to see the elbow, the lung, the, you know, brain, whatever is. And we love that. We love that our brain surgeons know everything there is to know about a brain, but we're not just our brain and we're not just our elbow, but we rank and value and reward fixing brains and elbows and hearts. Again, good things. We like it if they can be fixed. Awesome. All for it. For it. Mm -hmm. And with very little consideration to the excessive suffering and damage and harm we cause to the humanity of the patient, the caregivers. And I imagine even the physicians and nurses themselves who are seeing the deterioration, the suffering of their patient often. Amen, sister. You're hitting on a very key point here which is it's miserable for everyone. So a lot of us, myself included, I recently had some surgery, two surgeries last year that were, it turns out, a complete waste of time. Surgeons missed a call, but because of this myopic view of their role, right? and I get it, their jobs are miserable and getting more miserable by the day. And just to get through the day, a lot of people feel they have to take the narrowest version of their role yeah, so that they can say, sorry, not my department, you know? And so that was happening without anyone putting it all together and some mistakes were made. And I just wasted eight months, two surgeries, completely unnecessary. I got to have a third now, you know, and okay. All right. I, you know, and that there weren't huge, you know, my own miserable experience of being in bed for three and a half months recovering recovering from a surgery I didn't need, et cetera. Those, those experiences won't ever make its way to a medical chart. There no, no one, that's not, it's, a side story that doesn't really enter the fray of the day-to-day back and forth yeah. in a medical system. I tried talking to my surgeons about it. They just kind of looked at me like, yeah, well, yeah. That oh, well. Like, oh, well. You know, it's like, wow. And I'm a VIP being treated right. in, the, in the, you know, like I was on faculty in this place. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm not, ostensibly, I'm getting superior care. And yet. And yet. I mean, that's just, just one recent example among many where, all this specialization, all this busyness, all this administrative burden at some point is demoralizing for everybody involved. I watch and it traumatizing. Up. Traumatizing is a useful is a is an app. I word. think it can be. Yeah, it can be. We know this to be true, especially the more we understand trauma. So, and it's it hurt. It's hurtful for everybody involved. Which gets me to your other question about how medicine is viewing palliative care. You know increasingly it's accepted. When I did my fellowship in 2006, just when it was becoming an official subspecialty, there was no respect for the field. I'd walk around the halls and people just almost laughed. It was this soft science, you know, it's like- On that palliative doctor, I roll, wink, wink. Yeah. Yeah. That usually meant like, I didn't know anything, meant I I was interested in soft, mushy stuff like compassion and that I was going to try to convince people to stop fighting and die soon. You know, that's basically, it was just kind of pathetic, kind of funny on some level if it weren't so consequential. Now, most, a lot of physicians have found their way to accepting palliative care and even being very grateful for it. We know that systems that have palliative care programs, practices that have access to palliative care, patients are happier and the providers are happier. So 
There's an increasing acceptance for palliative care. Is that the norm now? I mean, would you say on balance? Mm-hmm. Not yet. I'd say it's the norm on the inpatient, in okay. the hospital, inpatient. Most large hospitals now have a palliative care program. Okay. Now we could talk about the quality of some of those programs. And blah, 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 and the, you know. yeah. <laughs> so there's lots to say yeah. here. But okay. for, as, a, as a grand arc, palliative care is becoming more accepted, even sought after for all sorts of reasons. We can talk about them. So that's good. And the field, which started mostly in the inpatient hospital setting, is now fanning out more and more outpatient palliative care programs, in-home palliative care programs, nursing homes, assisted living places, increasingly are inviting palliative care into the mix. So it is spreading not nearly fast enough. We couldn't possibly train enough clinicians as subspecialists to do this work to meet the current needs, let alone the needs of an aging population. So some of the work happening is people like myself and others are trying to drive palliative care principles deeper into medical school curricula, social work curricula, chaplaincy curricula, and nursing curricula so that anyone in the coming generations going through training will at least have some access to these Tools or skills or insights that even just help inform Exactly. How they show up in conversation with their patients. Exactly. And we call this primary palliative care. You're not a specialist, but these are the basics that any new clinician should have some grasp of. And in this way, we're overhauling how medical education training works. Here, too, we got a long, long way to go. Lastly, I'll just simply say two things. One is the pandemic, I think, is inviting palliative care into the mix in new ways, in important ways. And physician burnout is inviting into the mix. I get a lot of calls from people who want to mid-career repurpose themselves to palliative care because they're realizing what it's done to them to practice the other kind of medicine. Like moral distress kind yes. of you're talking about? Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So there's a lot to say about it, but I just want to finish the answer to your question. Yeah. That's sort of the grand arc. And I will say, actually, sorry, Lisa, I'm all No, good. I'm, <laughs> this is where we're going. I love it. No, no apologies. Well, good. Well, there's one last concern to share there. From inside the field, one of the things that's been very interesting to see is early on when I went into the field, it was it was like a calling. You know, people who were attracted to this field, especially because it was underappreciated, it was an it was an underdog hangout place. It wasn't you weren't going into it for the money. You sure and bragging going rights, respect, no bragging right, nothing. <laughs> so yeah. the early adopters, there was a countercultural sort of activist spirit for all the reasons I've been saying, and that's still alive within the field. But I'm also seeing as it's grown. And it's moved off the uh, off the margins into center stage. Well, we know what happens, whether it's a cultural or systems piece, when something moves to sort of center stage, it can become a little more conventional. It can lose its edge a little bit. You know, it can stop being as daring. And I see that happening too. I've seen a lot of pad of care programs actually that used to do amazing work kind of kind of re- shrinking or yes, yeah. and a regression to the mean. You know, they're now main stage in a system, they're becoming, it's hard to not be swept up into the apparatus of that system and become yet another subspecialty trying to ram everything into a 15-minute encounter. So I am I'm nervous about this growth, which is another reason. To make primary palliative, you know, across the board so that people are getting pieces of it kind of sprinkled throughout their care, maybe. You got it. You got it. And it's also why Sonia, my business partner, and I have moved our company outside of the healthcare system. We can talk about that. I do want to talk about that. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. Well, and that sort of shrinking that you're talking about as it's becoming more codified or sort of approved or is probably in its very nature then losing the thing that's so special about palliative is 
the recognition of the full humanity of the patient and the family. And it's sort of hard to hold the both and of regulated systems and procedures and billable hours and all those things and hold, you know, the fragile humanity of somebody at the same that's a that's a hard dance. It is a very hard dance. And now palliative care, the field that was sort of the answer to burnout is becoming burned out too. The clinicians are just as heavily burned out as oncologists. And so the meat grinder of the system, as we've asked to be more and more part of it, is having its impact on the field too. I'm not I want to be careful. I'm not I'm not giving up on my field by any stretch. There's, there's a lot there, but I'm watching these forces at work. Well, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the move to take your practice outside of sort of the hospital systems and what your goals and also kind of what you're seeing. But before we do, just spending a little more time kind of unpacking how it is you've come to think about and explain to your patients suffering and just kind of that space in between. I think about it a lot, of course, through the lens of grief. And I'm often trying to make visible, of course, there are places where your pain and your suffering and early loss after you know death is real and valid and needs to be held. But there's some spaces where we end up suffering because of this gap between what is and the shoulds. I call them the shoulds of grief, kind of like that we, I should be over by now. I shouldn't be mad. I should be mad. I should feel joy. I shouldn't feel joy. I should be dating again. Whatever our shoulds and and our suffering kind of is squeezed there by that what is and the should. Is that how you think about suffering when you're talking with your patients or what are you? Yeah, actually very much so, Lisa. The definition that I've hit upon just to make sense of it for myself is very much aligned with what you're saying. I, I think of it as the essentially the gap between the reality you have and the reality you wish for, you know, is the basic math of it, you know, and it also, that definition helps me kind of normalize it and also helps me see the sort of funny thing about humans, like our strengths and our weaknesses often are the same thing. So in a way we have these things called imaginations and it's a beautiful thing we humans have that imagination. It is to be celebrated, it is to be loved, it is to be worked with. And it's tricky. So with these imaginations, we can always imagine a world better than the one we have. We can always imagine ourselves a little, you know, we can we can imagine things that we don't yet have. And sometimes that lights a fire to narrow the gap between the reality we have and the reality we want. So maybe you can change your reality and bring that gap a little closer, change yourself, change your circumstances. Okay, that's one way to go. That usually has its limitations, you know, uh, changing the world is difficult. The other way in is from the other direction, which is a little bit more sort of contemplative or, you know, Buddhism's all over this, but essentially quit wishing for things you don't have, you know, essentially find your way to be okay. Look with at the where your feet you are have. in this moment. Exactly. Yeah. Look, yeah. yeah. Yes, be here now and quit wishing for something you don't have. That desire for something you don't have is the source of suffering in the Buddhist critique, but you don't have to be Buddhist. I mean, that's just one flavor. But so I, anyway, that's my definition and that helps me understand it as it's not just suffering. It's not just something that happens to us. It has much to do with our own sort of relationship to reality and how we push and pull on it. Yeah. You know, that's so interesting you say that. And I want to kind of pause and talk directly to the audience because I have these conversations often with the audience, but also, of course, with my clients. And I want to be careful to name this isn't another way in which we as practitioners in whatever kind of area we're in are blaming you for your suffering. 
You know what I mean? Which there's that temptation. I mean, you just talked about that earlier about how even just the larger medical field kind of is moving in that direction. We, of course, because we are storytellers, because we are part and parcel of this larger culture, collective we that tells all kinds of stories, it's natural inherent that we are looking for that thing that isn't in this moment. That's our human nature. So the fact that we have that isn't a problem. It's simply, I always bring it up with folks that I'm working with really as an invitation and just kind of opened the possibility that maybe the struggling is hard because of the thing that happened. Your husband died, your child died, your sister died. But what if there's extra suffering because of the regret or the stories you're telling yourself or the denying yourself joy or whatever is the the rub between what is and what you wish would be? So I just always like to think about as an invitation. And if you're very early in your grief listening to this, you know, something happened so recently, feel free to tell us both to F off and you're not ready to hear that yet. It's We're not always ready to address that. I guess that would be a question is when you're thinking about working with patients and their families, is that a rub sometimes that people aren't willing to quite look at their- Their piece of it? Piece of it. Yeah, <laughs> their piece of it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's rarely a problem insofar because in, in terms of how the relationship- By the time they're coming unfurls, to you- well, for one, by the time they're coming to me, they've oftentimes been sort of whittled down by they're ready other experiences. For. They're ready for it on some level. That is true. It's also on us as, you know, as the providers who ostensibly been around these blocks a few times to know how to pace ourselves. So if someone shows up in my, you know, if you're my patient, it's going to be a while before I start pointing you towards the things that maybe you could change. You know, first, let's get in Hold touch space with and bear witness to what is. Amen. I think it's plenty hard for many of us, myself very much included, to understand, to know how I even feel. So I need some real, I need some safety. I need some love. I need some support. I need some time to actually even get at my feelings in the first place, let alone work on them and, you know, understand the root causes of them, et cetera. So a lot of it has to do with how you unfurl these conversations and how you time certain questions. But yeah, I'm with you. The last thing, one of the Really, one of the last things we ever want to do with someone suffering is find a way to suggesting that it's... Disenfranchise it or suggest that it's their fault, that maybe. That it's their yeah. fault, my Lord. Yeah, so I mean, this is why I... So, yes. And I think it's really helpful to discern between the language... I didn't remember where I ever picked up this language, but sort of necessary versus unnecessary suffering or necessary versus uh, gratuitous suffering. I think that's a very important one. Suffering is not a punishment. It is a fact of being a human being period, the, for all the reasons you and I are talking. So, and therefore, it's elemental to the human experience, not an, an It anomaly. informs us. It, 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 I mean, your suffering absolutely. informed who you were in the world, who you continue to be in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. If we were put in this world with no limitations, nothing to, no friction, what the hell would we turn into? I wouldn't wish a lack of suffering on anybody. No. And we, it's too fruitful. It's too elemental. It's too fundamental. It's a linking force for all of us who exist, who have ever existed. We all have something in common by having some relationship to this experience of suffering. So there's much to say. And it's coming your way no matter what you do. Yep. It is not a failure. So it is that, part of being human on this period, earth. Period. So that's really key to hold that. Therefore, no shame, not your fault, no, la, la. And it's also true, we humans have a way of finding a way accidentally and sometimes on purpose <laughs> to creating this stuff, even despite our best intentions. Healthcare is a perfect example. I don't think of healthcare as a malevolent system. It's not. 
trying to hurt you. No. It's just not paying attention in certain ways. It's just not designed for the full reality of your experience. But that's different from being maliciously malicious. Exactly. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's just incomplete. So the unnecessary thing, that's where we get into the gratuitous. That's the stuff we invent. That's the stuff we can sort of, if we with time, root out and see our own how we play into it. Like sometimes I feel myself holding on to my suffering. I'm too identified with it sometimes. Sometimes I I need my misery. You know, there are all sorts of ways I, I invite suffering into my life more than I need. We all do. We, we all, all do. do. And then one way to start to loosen our grip in that is not then to judge ourselves for having exactly. unnecessary suffering. It's to be curious. I mean, I'm always exactly. thinking about that. How do we go inward with a kind of curiosity about yeah. the stories we're telling, what's floating around that might be adding on top of that necessary suffering, something that we might be able to figure out how to set down. Amen. Right on. Yeah, yeah. And curiosity. And curiosity. Is the way to get there. Oftentimes, I'm with you. Yep. As we begin to wind down our conversation, BJ explores why they've moved their practice outside the walls of the hospital system and also what's giving him hope. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, with my guest, B.J. Miller. Hosting this show is truly one of the greatest honors of my lifetime. Over the past three seasons, I've been so touched by every single note in my inbox and all the reviews pouring in on Apple Podcasts from listeners just like you. If the show's helped you in some way, I'd love to ask you a favor. After the show today, head over to Apple Podcasts leave a rating, and write a review. It means the world to me, and it helps ensure this show gets out to listeners like you who might be looking for a place to feel less alone in their grief. So you started to say a little bit that you and your partner pulled your practice sort of out of the healthcare systems. I don't know when that happened in the timeline of sort of moral distress and provider burnout. But tell us a little bit as we start to wind towards the end of our conversation, what made you pull it out? For what context? And what are you, what is it allowing you maybe to do that you couldn't do otherwise? Yeah. So metal health, M-E-T-T-L-E, M-E-T-T-L-E. Yeah. Metal, metal, like one's inner strength. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Metalhealth.com is our little website. It's online palliative care counseling and coaching. We were trying to make this as accessible as possible, um, which is one reason we pulled out of the healthcare system. You don't need a referral. Insurance has nothing to say about this. That means it's self-pay, at least for now. We do have a sliding scale. We are intending to find employers who will pay for this kind of service and eventually the health plans too. But that's an aside. Let me answer your question. So mental health came into existence about a year and a half ago, early in the pandemic. Okay. But the story of mental health is older. So Sonia, my business partner and I, she and I have been working together for about six years. She was our research assistant on the book that Shoshana Berger and I wrote, A Beginner's yeah. Guide to the End. And Sonia and I have done all sorts of things together. And then there's the arc of my own career, which moved from in like UCSF, academic medical center kind of thing, inpatient, outpatient, palliative care, full-on healthcare system stuff. Then I moved out to the community, worked at a Zen Hospice Project for several oh, yeah. years while okay. I kept my practice at UCSF. So I had one foot in the community, one foot in the academic medicine. 
then that work led me naturally to doing more public speaking and public engagement and moving in some ways farther away from the medical practice per se and into sort of advocacy work and public engagement. So it's also kind of consistent with my own arc. Yeah. This is sort of the next phase of it. So there's all that kind of momentum that took us here. But the reason, so a couple of thoughts. One is palliative care. If our subject matter is suffering, quality of life, love, belonging, you know, death, these are not inherently medical issues. You know, I, if I've got an arrhythmia, I want a cardiologist. If I'm suffering, maybe palliative care can help me, but maybe I want to talk to my priest. Maybe I want to talk to my friend. You know, these yeah. are not inherently medical issues is my point. And we've always known this. And palliative care as a clinical discipline is as we've been discussing. But if you look at that language, it's really a, a philosophy. It's an approach. It's a way of life. It has, you know, it's serving our humanity. Exactly. Very yeah. much so. And that is a much larger enterprise in healthcare. So I'm trying to find the natural contours to this subject matter. And I'm also trying to depathologize. Medicine is really good at pathologizing you. And I don't like that. They pathologize grief. That is for sure. You're I mean, my, right. I'm on a mission to try to shift the medical training around that for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's in its very essence, it's sort of diagnostic and pathologizing. Yeah. You got it. So, so I am very interested in exploring and finding the natural contours to this subject matter, which obviously are bigger in healthcare. I'm very interested in depathologizing these natural states and reorienting ourselves to natural life, what happens in a normal life. All of those impulses get at why we want to be outside the healthcare system and not beholden to the medical model per se. Yeah. So we kind of got we're all clinicians who staff the mental health. So we all have our experience with the healthcare system, which we use to help people, to coach people how to use their doctor, how to use their team yeah. better. But we love this perch on the periphery. We love having the line of sight inside and outside healthcare. I love that. I love. I mean, I do think some I innovations in lots of different spaces are happening because of the recognition of the brokenness. Again, if you're a doctor listening or a nurse listening, like there's a lot of great things about the systems. It's not, I'm not saying we should check it out, but I think these innovations like the one you and Sonia are taking on maybe were only possible as I think we sort of collectively started to recognize all the cracks because we put all of our eggs. The thing is, this is also old stuff. Don't you think this is also ancient too? Yes. Like this is this is the modern era of medicine and we put all of our eggs in that basket and now it's yes. all starting to, I'm mixing a lot of metaphors that don't go together. <laughs> um, but now that's starting to crack and crumble a little. Yes. And I feel like what you're talking about, or even I hope some of the reimagining grief that I'm trying to do is actually taking us back to maybe a more ancient way of thinking about our suffering, our humanity, our collective accountability to one another, our belonging. You got it. I'm so with you, Lisa. This, so we're talking about this discipline as being a new discipline, all this stuff, but it's really hearkening to an ancient way of being before we got seduced by the scientific method and the medical model in the 20th century that it could fix all these problems right. that had otherwise just been part of normal life. Now we've had enough of that to realize, mm, I guess we're not going to, we're not going to beat death or beat suffering. So now we're kind of reacquainting ourselves with in some way, older or more old stable knowing. ways of thinking, old knowings. Yeah, I'm with yeah. you. Absolutely. That's incredible. As we close, I think my last question for you, I love to ask this when I'm talking with fellow kind of thinkers and clinicians mm -hmm. and thought leaders is, 
And it might just be about what you're doing at mental health, but is there a next thing? Like, what are you most curious about right now? What are you looking to learn? What are you seeing or hoping to learn or discover or uncover in this, mm. in this work that you're doing? Well, I am really curious to see what happens if we have our way with this sort of depathologizing things. In other words, taking some of the shame out. So much of what we're doing is being with people through their experience and, and being with them is what changes it. But it is also true that I am trying to actually, I am trying to get rid of some stuff. I actually am trying to root some stuff out. And this sort of these secondary emotions like shame or guilt, yeah. that stuff, that is unnecessary suffering. And I am, that's a very different. So the necessary suffering begs us to accommodate it and be with it to grow into it. The unnecessary suffering begs an activism and begs an intervention. It begs something, a different approach. So Anyway, I am really keen to see what happens to society if we get big enough or to a community when it stops being embarrassed to be sick or embarrassed to die. What does that uncover? What happens to a society when you can rely on the fact that when you're having your darkest, most vulnerable moment, there is someone you can count on being there to hear you out? What happens? You know, to hear you out. Sorry to interject, but just what you said, not to fix you, not no, to correct no. you, not to shame you to, I always say broken record, hold space, bear witness, to hear you out. Yeah. And right on. Just to be yeah. with you. You know, what can, I just, I hope, I want mental health to be big because the issues are big, not just to be big. So if we can participate at scale in, in a re, uh, of a reordering of how society is functioning around these things. I hope I'm around to see that so I get to feel what it's like when all of us stop hating ourselves for being sad or, you know, and, and start loving life while we have it because we understand in our bones now that it will go away at some point. Like what happens when we really know those things and act from those things? I want to see, I want to live in a society that grasps those things. Amen. 100%. I want to be there too. And I'm on this activist ride with you to depathologize our very humanity and our very need for belonging and to be seen and to help be a guide to peeling away the unnecessary suffering that these kind of systems and ways of thinking, again, inadvertently sometimes lay on top of us. And the possibility of our humanity is kind of mind-blowing when you think about a time when when that shift is occurring. So I'm right with you there. You're right on. And in so many ways, this is what gives me some hope in coming, you know, moving through a pandemic, moving through so much of the social and political unrest among us. As we know from working with people, individuals whose lives fell apart, our collective life is sort of falling apart right now. And you know what? Let it fall. I Let's let it fall because then we'll find out who we really are underneath all this shellac and applique and, and then- And old can, beliefs and yes, stuck yes, systems. And, exactly. Yeah, old yeah. stories, tape that's no longer serving. We can just dump all of it and really get back to something more core and something more lasting and something way more beautiful. So for me and I, I think we both know from our own personal experience, we don't, you don't get to that vaunted place without some stuff having to fall apart. You know, so yeah. there's an opportunity in this moment right now with so much falling apart. Let's hang in there and really hold this line together. And we could come out so much better off than we were before. Yeah. Oh, BJ Miller. I hope this is the first of many conversations that we have. I'm so honored to have you on the show to be alongside you in this work in the world of depathologizing and holding more space for our humanity. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me in conversation today. 
Thank you, Lisa. It's such a pleasure. It's kismet, like-minded. I'm so glad that we share this big mission. This is definitely a team sport. And thank you all out there for listening to us. Please come along for this ride. It's a good ride. It is a good ride. Oh, my friends, I truly didn't want this conversation to end. I'm so grateful to Dr. B.J. Miller for sharing his personal and professional-born wisdom, for opening our minds and hearts to the universal experience of suffering, and for his activism in moving healthcare towards a human-centered approach, both in policy as well as on a personal level. This conversation has influenced my own thinking and role as a grief activist. I want to thank Gile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show and that team at StudioPod for helping me produce it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, BJ Miller. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. <laughs>